Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. This week's Acquirers podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Validia. Validia runs quantitative stock selection models using strategies based on academic papers and books with long-term track records of success. You may recognize Validia since two of its founders, Jack Forehand and Justin Carboneau, both good friends of mine, have appeared as guests on the podcast. With value stocks showing signs of turning around, Validia offers more than 10 systematic value models backed by long-term research, including strategies based on Joseph Piotrowski's F-score, Ben Graham's defensive investor from The Intelligent Investor, Joel Greenblatt's magic formula, the value composite from Jim O'Shaughnessy's What Works on Wall Street, and many others. Investors can access these strategies through concentrated 10 and 20 stock model portfolios or see how stocks rank based on each model's specific investment criteria. Through the end of March, Validia is offering 33% off an annual subscription to both its standard and professional product listeners of the Acquirers podcast. To find out more about Validia or to take a free trial, you can go to validia.com forward slash Toby. Again, that's V-A-L-I-D-E-A.com forward slash Toby. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Adrian Saville. He's back for a third time. It's the second one we managed to record. Uh, we failed the first time around, but I, I think I got the original this time. It's absolute, It's an absolutely fascinating discussion about South African investing, global investing, and pan-African investing coming up after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. Well, Adrian, you, you've been, you were one of my very early guests, one of my very early victims, and uh, I, I lost the recording of the very first one we did, so we had to do the tribute recording so I'm, i've made sure that everything's on and recording this time perhaps for folks who didn't catch the first one because we've grown a little bit since that one uh let's let's recap who you are so you're 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 both a professor and a practitioner of investing in south africa and your firm is canon asset manager so what's what's the focus of canon uh, Toby, it's great to be with you uh, again, and hopefully this time it's uh, first time uh, out the blocks. The uh, Canon is a business that I started uh, more than 20 years ago in the late 1990s, and you know, I suppose my my throwaway or my claim to fame uh, in, in in the birthing of the business in the late 1990s was we were ensconced in uh, the Asian and Russian crises. Uh, emerging markets were uh, deeply out of favor, uh, you know, and in a flash of brilliance, I decided to start um, uh, an emerging market equity firm. Uh, since then, you know, the business has grown to uh, today look after um, uh, individual and institutional assets, uh, and uh, also grown not just in terms of the uh, stature and nature of clients, but also their geographies. For, for the last uh, 12, 13 years, uh, I've been running a global equity fund, uh, which uh, borrowing on Canon's roots of being uh, an, a high active manager, uh, being comfortable building very, very high conviction portfolios, that global equity fund uh, runs with just 30 stocks in it. 
you know, a, a benchmark against MSCI uh, or Country World Index, which has got a couple of thousand stocks. Uh, and you know, I think that that's you know that speaks to sort of the real heart and pulse of our investment philosophy and process is uh, the capacity to discover or establish, identify inefficiencies. And those inefficiencies might be by uh, through owning factors. Uh, uh, you know, factors can be wide ranging from you know, deep value, momentum, quality, but, but owning factors is a broad brush way of building those uh, different than market portfolios. But I think where we've uh, really established uh, um, uh, a, a skill um, is in identifying individual names that are off most investors' radar. And that's achieved by going outside of the, uh, uh, of the top 40 uh, in South Africa. The top 40 index makes up about 80% of market cap. Uh, the top 100 makes up about 90% of market cap. So covering 100 stocks gives you 90% uh, 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 market coverage. Uh, yet there are uh, many, a few hundred more uh, highly liquid, well-traded uh, businesses with long track records. And if you roll up your sleeves and you go digging uh, into that, uh, that market arena, there is some of the most extraordinary value and opportunities. But I think that captures, uh, that captures Canon perhaps in a, in a couple of sentences introduction. When you're, when you're implementing your strategy, um, which countries do you predominantly end up invested in or is that a movable feast or do you find that there's a, a concentration in, in particular areas? So globally, when, when we're building our global portfolio, what we try and remove, uh, and this is very, very deliberate, is we try and remove macro risk. Uh, and that macro risk we measure at the level of currency, country and industry. And so we, you know, whilst I'm, uh, whilst I'm boasting that we build a 30-stock fund that looks very, very different to uh, the MSCI index, it actually holds weights uh, that resemble uh, the MSCI currency weight, industry weight, and geography weight. Uh, if you get the idea right but the country wrong, uh, you're stranded. If you get the idea right and the currency wrong, you're stranded. So we try and sterilize or neutralize those big macro risks, and then we will fill our, uh, you know, our 10% Japanese allocation or our 15% European allocation with uh, you know, core ideas, focused ideas that, that will then give us a footprint that mimics the, uh, the, the index. So that means you know, we tend to look very similar uh, to global footprint at the industry country currency level, but the names that make up the portfolio, I think really make for, uh, you know, some interesting reading. And, you know, by way of example, uh, we build real estate exposure in the, by owning Omega Healthcare in the United States, which is a seven, 8% dividend yielder. Um, it doesn't run, but rather owns uh, uh, um, uh, uh, old age homes, um, uh, beautifully diversified portfolio, 70% exposure to the US, 
30% to the UK and, uh, and Europe. You'll appreciate by nature of the business model, it has very, very high occupancy rates. Uh, uh, and it has a, a strong, stable and affluent client base. So, you know, those are the types of ideas that we look to, to populate the portfolio. And in turn, it translates into very long holding periods. The average holding period in that uh, global portfolio at the moment uh, is about seven years, uh, which I think, you know, also distinguishes us from many of the, uh, uh, you know, more obvious investment destinations. And, you know, our boast here is that we really are investors with, our, with an average holding period of seven years rather than seven months. How do you characterize your style? <laughs> well, uh, if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago <laughs> uh, or 12 years ago, 2008 or so, then I would have told you uh, unashamedly and with very, very high conviction, uh, deep value, uh, that we were quite comfortable going in search of Ben Graham net nets. Uh, we would look for big balance sheets, strong cash flow, and, and quite comfortable, uh, you know, really rolling up our sleeves. What, uh, uh, what uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, tells us <laughs> is that uh, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. <laughs> and if we had tried to stay with that, uh, with that approach in a, in a sort of a, a, a pig-headed way for 12 years, I think the business would have failed uh, because um, uh, investors just ha have really fallen out of love with that type of style and approach. And so out of necessity, uh, more, uh, we've, we've been obliged to shift uh, some of the portfolio construction and going in search of uh, less deep value. Uh, you know, I, I would still describe our style as strong value orientation, very, very patient, high information um, uh, searches. But uh, uh, we've had to put factors including uh, quality uh, uh, into the portfolio. And I think that that's that was an expensive lesson to learn, 2009, 2010. Um, uh, but, you know, we're not talking more than a decade of having shifted our investment approach. Uh, I'm making a long answer of, uh, of a short, uh, but I think really important question. And I would describe then an aspect of our investment approach as being constant learning. That not for one moment do we imagine we've worked it out. Um, and so we're constantly trying to figure out different approaches. Uh, if our style uh, or uh, tools aren't working, why aren't they working? Um, and if they are working, you know, are we confident that they will sustain that, that performance? When we first spoke uh, a few years ago, you had uh, spoken a little bit about the Superdogs portfolio. Can you just describe yeah. the Superdogs and, and update us perhaps on how Superdogs has performed? Sure. So you, you, you introduced me as having a, a professorship, and I think that's where Superdogs starts, is in my uh, academic origins, all the way back in the late 1990s, around the time that uh, we were starting the business. I, I sort of wondered aloud what would happen if I went and bought 
the most unloved businesses on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. The, uh, the way in identifying unlovedness, and, and that idea was brought to me by uh, a colleague at the time, Paul von Rensburg, uh, who was doing a lot of work in factor investing. And uh, uh, you know, Paul showed me some really interesting work, uh, including uh, Bill Horgan stuff in the new finance, uh, which was identifying some clear you know, factors, including uh, price book, dividend yield, price earnings. And uh, uh, you know, my thinking aloud was, well, I wonder what would happen if I applied those same screens or filters and uh, built a South African portfolio. I think I was fortunate in that rather than just screening for uh, the factors, I forced that the factors had to be multi-industry, uh, which meant you weren't just going and finding the lowest price book, highest dividend yield, lowest price earnings, rather you were finding it in the retail sector, in the engineering sector, in the telco sector, et cetera. And so I forced that sectoral diversification. And that, that was one of the very first really big learnings that I got out of building that portfolio was the free lunch offered by diversification. Uh, and uh, that portfolio has been running since uh, mid 1990s to now. And over that period, has done 39 times capital versus the market's 15 times capital. So it's just an absolutely extraordinary investment result. And I'm not going to put it down to any you know, personal brilliance. I'd love to claim all types of ownership. We have applied uh, year after year the exact same uh, filters. Having said that, those filters have become slightly more refined, and in particular, it was global financial crisis that, uh, uh, that encouraged us to put quality on uh, as a filter alongside the, the deep value. But from mid-1990s to 2008, 2009, uh, we did uh, just price earnings, price book, dividend yield. That was it. Uh, the company had to be uh, sufficiently liquid of a su sufficient size that we could invest uh, and it had to be profitable. Those were, those were the criteria. 2008, we put on a second suite of screens that included uh, Piotrowski F scores, Altman Zs, uh, 50 years on Altman Z still works. Um, uh, you know, borrowing from the stuff that James Monte has built like his C score. Uh, so a suite of quality criteria and adding those to the value criteria, um, we've run that, that double filter since 2008 to present. And um, notwithstanding the fact that value as a style has really struggled in South Africa and globally, uh, Superdogs has done okay. It's managed to hang on to what I think is a, is a really impressive uh, performance. To, to what do you attribute that? Is it the fact that it's got that diversification and the quality filter? Do you think that's what's helped? You know, Toby, I think it's a couple of uh, it's a couple of elements. Uh, the one is just sticking with the process because you can get zero percent return, minus ten, minus twenty. You you want to give up, and then you're presented with a whiz bang year. You know, a, a real hallelujah year of plus 60, plus 80. 
So we've had a couple of those. We've had a couple of plus 60, plus 80 years. But to get those, you just have to hold the line. Uh, and I think that that's the one attribute. What also <laughs> um, uh, I'm chuckling because, you know, I'm thinking of a note around about the time we last spoke, I had just written a note talking about, you know, the incredible value that was uh, uh, buried inside of this portfolio, convinced, and you especially have this feeling when you've just written the note, convinced that it's about to be unleashed. And of course, nothing happened. Uh, and so the best performance tends to come when you don't expect it. Uh, and a great case in point is the last six months where the portfolio has had a superb time uh, as the COVID conditions uh, sort of eased, the South African economy went into better shape, the RAND became one of the best performing emerging market currencies, and our uh, uh, unloved uh, mid-small nano-cap stocks just set up uh, phenomenally. So I, I think that that's the one attribute. The second is uh, we're, we're paid to wait, and th that's through dividend yield uh, and or uh, uh, share buybacks. And, and so you can be paid to wait, uh, which is just a, a, a comforting, you know, ongoing uh, compounder where if you give it enough time uh, and you look at the dividend yield of the portfolio, the average portfolio dividend yield is about 2.5% above the market per annum. Uh, and that 2.5% per annum can become quite a powerful compounder in the fullness of time. And then I think the, the third factor that really turns it into uh, an extraordinarily powerful uh, uh, investment proposition is that it's got this uh, uh, mid-cap and even more importantly, small-cap, micro-cap, nano-cap. And those nano-cap stocks, again, going back to the last time we spoke, uh, if, I, if, if I remember correctly, we spoke about a company called Indequity, uh, which was an insurance company trading at then at about three rand a share. It had more than that in cash on the balance sheet. And from then to now, uh, the share price has moved from three rand to eight rand. We've had dividends every year, and they've just been taken off the, the market. So, uh, you know, and, and that, that, that um, position is not available to an institute, a big institutional investor. It's just too small. So I think that those things put, come together as a nice cocktail. Let's um, go back to the global portfolio. When you think mm. about constructing a portfolio that has 30 stocks and your holding period is seven years, how do you deal with rebalancing and uh, maintaining those sector and industry geographical exposures that you need? How was how the rebalancing process achieved there? Uh, well, first, the, the, the investment process has the discipline of regular renew. Uh, uh, review, sorry. Uh, and so we will regularly review the portfolio uh, by discipline, by um, uh, construction uh, on a monthly basis. But what we don't do is, uh, you know, keep pulling it back to, uh, to benchmark weight. And I think this is where investing quickly turns from being, uh, you know, a science into an art, where you have to let this... Uh, uh, 
you have to let the winners run. Um, and that's, I think that that's quite tricky because, you know, the winners can run so far that they, so hard that they start to actually distort the portfolio, imbalance the portfolio. A great case in point would be a position that we've held uh, in uh, South Korean uh, assets recently, where South Korea has had a fantastic uh, last 12 months or so. And hanging on to that is a, is a great momentum factor, but give it enough rope and it starts to become an uncomfortably overweight position. So, you know, I, I, this is, I think, where you have to, where you have to rely on, you know, not just hard metrics and science, but, you know, some gut feel and experience and know that you want the winners to run long enough that you can own the momentum, but not so long that you start to put specific risk into the portfolio. And I think that that's art rather than science, which is probably an unhelpful answer. No, that's a great answer. That's, that's, a, that's a very helpful <laughs> answer. Uh, you, you've, um, you've spoken uh, on a number of occasions to our mutual friend, John Mihailovic, at his uh, Manual of Ideas. Mm. Um, would you like to just uh, discuss a few of those ideas on this podcast? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> well, without uh, you know, sort of uh, creeping onto uh, you know John's turf or terrain, I've had the the pleasure of being invited to speak on the the, the best ideas platform for a couple of years, and um, uh, we've you know we've shared some ideas uh, that I think have have well not I think that have translated into to really good results. Uh, again, you know, emphasizing the uh, the information that you can uh, discover or uncover by going a little bit off the radar uh, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. And for people uh, listening to the podcast who aren't familiar with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, it's well, first, uh, you know, it's a really well established market. The JSC has been around for a uh, hundred and 40 years uh, as, a, 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 as a formal market, uh, 140 years ago being the foundation of gold mining, diamond mining, and then later platinum and coal mining businesses, really sort of the origins of South African um, uh, resource uh, uh, and mining houses. Uh, and over the 140 years has established a reputation or a position as being a well-regulated, uh, well-traded uh, exchange where you've got uh, excellent uh, compliance, superb protection of minority shareholders. Um, you've got strong rule of law in South Africa. Uh, you can uh, establish your rights, contest your rights, um, hold managements accountable and so on. So we've got uh, notwithstanding the fact that we are a small uh, commodity-based uh, uh, economy, we have a very sophisticated, well-established stock exchange. Um, you know, and I think that that uh, provides for a, uh, a, a very uh, robust uh, investment environment. Um, the the ideas that uh, uh, that I've well maybe you know maybe we can go backwards over the last couple of years and 
uh, you know, a great case in point of one of the ideas two, three years back was Telcom, which is one of South Africa's large listed telcos. And what jumped out uh, to us about Telcom was that uh, it had a market cap at the time of about 30 billion rand, uh, very profitable, high dividend yield. Uh, I'm, I'm going to sort of speculate on what the dividend yield was at the time. I'm re remembering back three years. And I think the dividend yield was sitting somewhere around 7% um, with a price earnings multiple of seven times and a 30 uh, billion rand market cap. The huge, however, was, however, that 30 billion market cap was represented by a 20 billion rand property portfolio, uh, which was invested in masts and towers. So they, you know, their own masts and towers that they're routing their traffic through, that makes up 20 billion of the market cap. Um, and we're gonna be paid a 7% uh, dividend yield. Our suspicion was that that uh, property business, it's called um, uh, Gyro. Our suspicion was that that would be unbundled and we would have a huge release of trapped value and then own the telco as long as the, uh, alongside the property portfolio. Uh, the market got ahead of itself and it took the share price from where we had been buying it uh, at around 25 and 30 Rand. It took the share price all the way up to 90 Rand. And at that point, full value had been, uh, had been reflected or recognized and we exited. What was absolutely extraordinary was no sooner had we uh, uh, sold our, all of our positions in uh, Telcom, then the share price quickly fell back to uh, 60 and 50 Rand. Now, you know, this sort of makes you feel, well, hang on, should I be trading this stock? <laughs> And we went back and we, we reinvested. Uh, to my dismay, it, uh, it didn't uh, bottom at 50 and 60. It kept falling into the 40s and 30s, where we actually went and bought even more. Um, and from then, the share prices subsequently uh, sat back up. Now, so that's an example. Um, even if you example, what <laughs> felt like that. Sorry, say that again, Tim. Do you have any view on why it fell like that? No, it, it, head scratching. No idea. Absolutely no idea. You know, we, you know, what we wondered uh, when we re-entered the position at fifty and sixty, we thought like, wow, you know, we're really clever. We've got this right. You know, and then it falls to forty and thirty, and like, well, hang on, you know, what, what don't we know here? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Was it a big party I exiting? Just, do, do people see your trades and and? and leave when no, you're no, no. I mean, we're, a, we're a tiny participant in the market. There's no way, uh, you know, we had this, the ability to influence the market. Absolutely no way. Um, you know, something else was going on and whether it was uh, a, a, you know, a large fund changing their view on South Africa, uh, there was concern about um, some regulatory changes. Uh, some of the um, activities of telecom had come under question. So, you know, they could be in line for uh, a regulatory fine. You know, even then, uh, you know, not that I'm excusing or forgiving a regulatory fine, but even then, if we put in the most uh, robust assumptions about what that fine might be, there was no way, uh, you know, you could get to a, a 30 or 40 rand share price. So... Yeah, you know, we, we sat with our position and 
yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it's found its way back, not to 90 rand, but uh, you know, back to towards um, you know some more sensible territory. And I think uh, that uh, that gyro property uh, will 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 be released. Uh, it, it still hasn't been released. And the reason why uh, I would put that down to the COVID-19 um, environment where people just went into holding patterns. One of the unusual features of the South African market is that it is largely a resource-based market. And I'm familiar with markets like that because mm -hmm. I come from Australia and Australia's got a similar kind of market. <laughs> but you have this unusual feature in South Africa that you've got a very large tech stock in Tencent. Is that, what's, what's the update on Tencent? Well, I mean, it's, uh, if, if you're an active manager, it's an absolute curse because, uh, <laughs> because Tencent initially was held through a company called Naspers. Um, uh, Naspers acquired a substantial stake in Tencent many years ago, uh, and that has become uh, a, 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 a huge component of the broad Johannesburg Stock Exchange, making up more than 25% uh, of the index. And you know, when I, when I give that example, I'm reminded of Nokia, uh, you know, where Nokia became the single stock explaining 80% uh, of the index. Um, if you get it right, you look like a superstar. If you get it wrong, you look like an idiot. Um, and that makes a very strong case for actually indexing, uh, you know, just owning the index basket. But uh, to get to your question more exactly, uh, uh, NASPAS has been under a lot of pressure to try and uh, re release uh, the trapped value because NASPAS trades at about 50% or 50 cents in the dollar of its 10 cent uh, valuation. Uh, and you know, there's no good reason for this. Why would it trade at that type of discount? The NASPAS has done two things in recent times. The first was they separated out uh, part of the portfolio into a business called Process, which is also a holding company, but that allows them to uh, separate or distinguish uh, some of their e-commerce businesses uh, in NASPERS and Process. The, the however is however, now both NASPERS and Process are trading at 50 cents in the dollar. <laughs> so, you know, go figure. And what both of the businesses have done in the last year or so is they've gone into quite active uh, share buyback programs. Uh, and there's a very vocal um, uh, shareholder community that is trying to get this value, uh, this trapped value released. But it's, uh, it's, it, it's billions of, uh, uh, of dollars that are, tra that are trapped in there. Is the, I know that you wanted to discuss a hold co example. Is that the hold co example you're thinking of? Well, I mean, no, it's it's one of them. Um, uh, there's so you, you know you've said South Africa has this uh, large um, uh, uh, tech investment. I would, you know, perhaps I should you know add to that or uh, alongside your observation, comment that you know although that that's one of the very large uh, tech investments. Outside of that, South Africa is relatively tech poor uh, from a market perspective. However, um, 
we also have a very sophisticated and established financial services uh, cluster. And over the years, that financial services cluster has translated into many hold codes being listed. Um, uh, African Rainbow Capital uh, is an example, Breit, Brimstone, Ethos, uh, Long for Life, Nice Person Process that we've just mentioned, PSG, uh, Zeta, which is an agricultural sector hold co, uh, and, and I've done all of those alphabetically. Uh, <laughs> so uh, when I run through that list and I look at their net asset value and their share prices as a collective, they trade at uh, about a, a 40 or 50% discount to net asset value. And some of them are you know, huge uh, market caps uh, with these very, very big uh, discounts to NAV. So in the case of Nasperson Process, we're talking about um, a $100 billion market cap. Uh, and so you've got a $100 billion market cap trading at, in the case of Nasperson, a 55% discount to net asset value and Process a 35% discount to net asset value. So not only do you have massive market cap, you've got huge discount. What's really interesting, and this is where, you know, the clever financial engineering can come in, is the Nasperson process portfolios actually look quite similar. So you could get here a free lunch by going uh, long Nasperson short process uh, uh, with the 55% and 35% discount being your uh, you know, that's your straddle. But, the, you know, the other hold codes that I wanted to reference in passing, and this was the one that I, I spoke to John about earlier in the year, uh, is a company called uh, Sabvest Capital. And Sabvest Capital has been listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange uh, since the late 1980s. And over uh, this 30-year uh, listed investment history, uh, it has produced a, a compound return on assets, a, a cumulative return on assets uh, of 21% per annum. So you've got a business that's compounding uh, a return on invested capital, ROIC, of 21% per annum. Its weighted cost of capital in the South African environment would be, given its market cap, uh, given our uh, risk-free rate, uh, you would put a weighted average cost of capital of low uh, double digit, uh, and for the sake of a number, you know, a 12% weighted average cost of capital with a return on uh, invested capital of 21%. And this business is compounding uh, away quite comfortably, also getting into the business of share buybacks. It's got a beautifully diversified portfolio um, uh, about half of the asset is outside of South Africa. And then it's multi-industry. It owns uh, a document and data storage business. It owns a textile uh, zippers and fasteners business. Uh, it owns a taxi fleet financing business. It's got some small uh, industrial food and related uh, uh, industry uh, investments. Uh, and you know, so here you've got this wonderfully diversified portfolio by industry, by geography, by currency, compounding at 21% per annum, buying back and canceling its own shares, and it's trading at uh, 50 cents in the rand. 
the uh, actually it's trading at 40 cents in the rand. Um, what uh, you know, what the cynics will tell you is, but you know, when is that 60% uh, discount going to close? And you know, maybe the, the cheeky answer is, well, hopefully it never closes, because here I can effectively get a, a geared investment. I'm paying 40 cents for a rand of equity, uh, and uh, it's the rand of equity that's compounding at 21% per annum on my uh, 40 cent um, uh, uh, exposure. So, uh, you know, this is a, uh, I think, an example of, you know, one of the really interesting ideas in the South African environment for, you know, international investors, global investors, it might be just a little too small. It's a hundred million dollar market cap. Um, you know, for us, uh, uh, it's more than uh, sufficient size for us to build quite a large position in our specialist equity portfolio. We own about 10% of our specialist equity portfolio is allocated to SAPVEST. You have these very diverse um, ideas from very broad parts of the, of the world. How, how do you find the ideas? How are you sourcing ideas? Uh, by, by, I think, well, first, just by reading widely, um, by having uh, interest uh, in lots of different markets from you know, Southeast Asia to South America. A way of feeding that is uh, my wife and I have a, uh, an affinity for travel. Um, and so travel takes you to different markets, different cultures, uh, and in those geographies, you, I think it exposes you to uh, opportunity sets. And, uh, and then through relationships like yours and mine, you know, a network, uh, which obliges you to uh, explore globally. And my, you know, my cheeky observation would be that, you know, perhaps I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg, South Africa, but the fact that we're speaking, I think it's something a.m. your time. Uh, That's right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fairly late p.m. my time. Uh, you know, we're having a great conversation. The time of day doesn't matter. Geography doesn't matter. Um, and that really does make uh, the world investable. And so I would apply... Uh, you know, my cheeky observation would be, well, you know, why couldn't I live on Mars then? Uh, uh, and, you know, could we have a discussion as if we were Martian investors looking at the world as the place that we're going to allocate capital? One of the challenges that you confront uh, investing on Mars is that they've got no doubt a very different regulatory regime to the one that we have here. Perhaps <laughs> they've got a different method of reporting. How would you get well, we'll, go, we'll go and ask my fellow South African Elon Musk. Would you? Soon. He's just looking yeah. for another place to list. The, so, <laughs> how do you get comfortable with the uh, you know, many diverse regulatory regimes? You've got different yeah. accounting regimes. You've got IFRS for many parts of the world, GAP. And all of those IFRS implementations mm -hmm. are... Our local implementations too. There's a big difference between the Australian implementation of it and various others. So, how do you how do you get yeah. comfortable with those with with that sort of the, the different regulatory environments? 
Yeah, look, you know, I think that that's a, that's a great question. And more than just being a great question, I think it's a, it's a really critical question because if you get the idea right, but the risk wrong, uh, you're going to be caught in there, and uh, you see that in you see that especially in uh, uh, frontier markets, where in recent times I can think of investors getting caught in uh, Angolan investments, Nigerian investments, where they could get the capital in, but they couldn't get the capital out. So, you know, that's our, in fact, that's our start position in considering any investment. We don't worry about evaluation or what do we think that this, this thing is worth. We first worry about, uh, can we get out? <laughs> you know, can we, uh, will we be protected as minority shareholders? Is there liquidity? Uh, can we buy the investment? And if we sell the investment, can we exit the capital and repatriate it to our Bank of New York Mellon account. Um, so all of those are absolutely critical issues. If we are going to get into a legal tussle, will we have the protection of courts? Will we have minority shareholder protection? And you know, that then takes you, you know, I, I suppose fairly obviously, uh, if you're looking in Latin America, it takes you far more comfortably or takes us far more comfortably to a uh, a Chilean investment for exposure in Latin America. In uh, Southeast Asia, we're going to be far more comfortable and confident in a Taiwanese investment or a South Korean investment. And by way of example, for a number of years, we've held our, uh, you know, I'll use air commerce here, our exposure to China uh, by way of a Taiwanese investment uh, uh, called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Congrats. Um, and, and, you know, so that's sort of a proxy. Um, uh, and, and those are the ways that we'll square up to those types of challenges. It's, it's, um, it, it's long been said that there's an African century coming. Do you feel that <laughs> it is in fact here? Have the, I don't know what yeah. has changed, but it does seem to me that there's been, it's, it's become increasingly uh, to the forefront that, perhaps the change in telecommunications technology mm. has sort of done something to Africa seems to be the, 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 uh, a, a place that I hear a lot of people talking about as an investment destination. Well, on the ground, how do you feel about yeah. that? Uh, I've got um, the privilege in my pro uh, professorial portfolio. I've got the privilege of looking after um, an entity called the center for African management and markets. Uh, which is based at my business school, uh, the Gordon Institute of Business Science. And uh, our ambition, our endeavor through that center uh, is to turn good ideas into actionable investments um, and actionable businesses. So we, you know, we refer to this as build, connect, do, sort of thought leadership and business models turning into uh, being actualized. Uh, you know, and, and what would make that so compelling is, uh, I agree with you, you know, there's a range of things that are going on that are coming together. Uh, 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 financial inclusion is an aspect. Uh, uh, telcos and digitization uh, is another aspect. Your observation reminds me of um, uh, a business that was built in Kenya called Emakiba, 
that Emma Kiba allows you to buy on your smartphone a government bond, and that government bond invests in Kenyan infrastructure with a 10% yield. You know, I mean, that's just, it's, it's revolutionary um, uh, by way of business modeling, financial inclusion, uh, the convergence of uh, uh, data, mobility, access. Then, you know, you could add alongside this some very big structural drivers, including young populations, uh, increasing uh, access to education, improving productivity levels, uh, improving infrastructure, and then the, probably the two or three big needle movers in recent times have been growing confidence in uh, political and regulatory arrangements. If you rewind uh, 20 years ago and you look for democracies in Africa, you're hard pressed. If you look for democracies today, you are impressed by the maturity. Uh, and the, the most recent example is Ghana, which has just had you know, a change in, uh, in regime, peaceful change in uh, a political regime. Nigeria has had peaceful change in political regime, and so on and so on. Uh, so Africa is overwhelmingly today democratic uh, rather than despotic, which it was 20, 25 years ago. So I think that that's one big needle changer. The second uh, needle mover, the second is a uh, uh, movement across borders and inside of countries. And the African Continental Free Trade Agreement is the big story of 2021. And then the third is a global recognition, uh, which has uh, put, pushed global capital into these emerging and frontier markets. China is the big mover uh, you know, on this front, but um, uh, the capital appetite and the investor interest, China might be at the front uh, of the train or the front of the, the charge, but it, it really is a multinational interest uh, that is adding to substantial domestic investment rates. And you can go to countries as different as uh, 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 Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, uh, Ethiopia, where you will find uh, gross domestic fixed investment rates of 25 and 30% of GDP. That's fascinating. Do you have any, uh, when you when you're, Aside from your own country, do you have any, uh, which of them do you feel are most mature or furthest along the path to becoming sort of a good investment destinations? Uh, I've probably given away, you know, my favorite ideas uh, or my favorite uh, places in West Africa, the uh, countries, the economies that stand out uh, most impressively, uh, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, or the Ivory Coast, uh, as it's uh, uh, the Anglophone would have it, um, uh, Ghana, uh, uh, its uh, its its neighbour, and those two, although they are much much smaller than Nigeria in population and geography, um, have I think more substantial, more substance uh, in terms of industrial uh, positioning and investability. On the east east coast, you could almost invest. A bit of a sweeping statement, but you could almost invest anywhere uh, in the east coast. It, it really is sort of a, a, an impressive crescent shape uh, of economies from uh, Ethiopia, Tanzania, 
uh, Kenya, Rwanda, very, very impressive, all the way down to, to Mozambique, which is packing in 5 and 6% economic growth rates per annum. Uh, and then in Southern Africa, uh, South Africa has got a lot of work to do to step up to the economic uh, and social prosperity plate. So I would venture that the more impressive uh, investment destination in uh, Southern Africa is Botswana, uh, which is best known for its diamond fields. Is that the predominant, is, is, it, is it minerals uh, that are, uh... Minerals yeah. and resources throughout throughout Africa. Yeah, well, you know, no. I mean, if you so if you go to uh, uh, West Africa, you know, I would you know to give you examples of names. You know, an example in West Africa would be a business called Sonatel, uh, which is the Senegalese listed telco. Uh, it's uh, and this goes back to your question about how do you get comfortable investing in Senegal. Uh, you know, which is French-speaking, Francophone Africa. Well, uh, Sonatel is, although it is based in uh, Senegal, it is listed um, uh, in Europe and it is controlled by uh, Orange um, or you know, perhaps it's Orange, uh, <laughs> uh, the French telco. So, you know, we've got uh, a European uh, listing, we've got a French parent company, uh, and that gives us uh, comfort uh, being invested there. Uh, if we go to uh, Southern Africa, um, and uh, Zambief is a great example. Zambief stands for Zambia beef. Um, and Zambief is listed in Zambia. It is also listed on the London Stock Exchange. You know, so there again, you've got you know, the confidence that you're getting reporting, regulation, auditing, compliance, governance, uh, and so on. And uh, I think the, you know, if, I, if my argument to you right at the beginning of this podcast is you can find some interesting stuff in South Africa, if you're comfortable pushing the net a little bit wider and doing a pan-African survey, there are just the most extraordinary opportunities, multi-industry, multi-country, uh, and no, well beyond resources into uh, beverages, telcos, financial services, um, uh, and more. That's absolutely fascinating, Adrian. Um, I, we're coming up on time. If, uh, if folks want to get in contact with you or follow along with what you're doing, how do they go about doing that? Uh, Toby, easiest way to find me is just through my Twitter handle, uh, which is my name, at uh, Adrian Saville. Uh, and um, I, I guess that that's the easiest way to find me. I'll link that up in the show notes. Adrian Saville, Canon Asset Management, thank you very much. Great being with you. <laughs>